0: this is a podcast by wellhouse church where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon what's going on bible nerds let's take a closer look at genesis one two
1: and three let's do it I. You know, when we recorded last week's episode, I really kind of felt like when I went back and edited it, I really felt like I was kind of rambling. Sure. And it's because I was. <laughs> yeah, I mean... And the the reason is because this is such a rich area, yeah. and I'm excited about it, and it, it could go in a number of different ways. That it could. And so... I want to preface by saying, like, first, yes, last week's episode, I was rambling, I was excited, I really wasn't hundred percent sure where this was going to land us, and I've done a little bit more work on it now and kind of have some kind of direction. plus, we launched the store that episode, so that was that was last week. that's why it felt a little rambly, And I only preface all of that say, I'm about to summarize all of my ramblings now. So in Genesis 1, it becomes very clear that God has this persistent idea of fruit that is a motif throughout the narrative. Sure. It keeps coming up. And it seems, I had we had some conversations uh, this past week. It seems to me almost that when God says to the male and the female that he makes in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, that had always been coupled together for me. Like, to be fruitful and multiply was almost like Hebrew poetry, and it was like a couplet. Almost like they're synonyms of one another. Right. I'm not so sure that's the case.
0: Yeah, after some conversation that we had with... Um, some people here in our community, um, our dad actually made a really good point that they're not separate, maybe, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it, being fruitful is a statement of pursuing divinity. Yeah. And multiply is procreation, right? Yes. Um, one, both. Referencing, you know, Imago Day, right? But also, yet, still separate in the command.
1: Well, because fruitfulness is multiplication, but sure. multiplication is not necessarily fruitfulness, right? And if you think about it, if we're doing narrative theology here, right? How do trees bear fruit without without being too crass? They don't have sex, no. There are plants that bear fruit that need pollinization, right? Which is a type of that, but not all of them do. No, um, it appears to me that being fruitful and multiply is not in and of itself an entire unit of phraseology, an idiom of sex, right? I think there's more to it than that.
0: I think so. I- I've spent the, the last week kind of sitting on that um, after we've kind of talked about it, we're recording this on a Friday and we had this conversation on Sunday. Um, and I've kind of spent the week sitting with it and thinking about it. And I, I genuinely think that they, that our dad is right. Yeah. That they are two separate things. When you look at what's happening in the Genesis one, two, and three kind mm-hmm. of story
1: Mm -hmm.
0: now it's too it's really weird but Mm -hmm. like when you look at it as a whole it's really honestly seems to make sense that it's something different and then when you put the narrative of fruit together throughout scripture which we're going to keep talking about right it's especially when we get to paul talking about like fruits of the spirit right be fruitful and multiply right being fruitful is in a way, these fruits of the Spirit, things that push you towards divinity to God-likeness and multiplying is simply just procreation.
1: Well, which I also think is a part of the image. Right. Oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. What I think is happening here is that Genesis 1 is giving you more of a feel that Genesis 1 reveals a whole lot about who God is. Right. And the number one thing that it reveals about God is that God is good and the things he makes are good. Now, it also lets you know that God is maker. Yes. Do you remember the old school, like, meme, gif, whatever? And it's like, I make these. You mean gif. No, no, <laughs> stop, stop. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, oh my god, old oh. old school. F's in the chat for Clayton. Fail, 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 fail.
0: That is okay. Moving on.
1: All right, <sighs> now you made me lose my train of thought. It. <laughs> That's what I'm here to do. <laughs> joker so through it genesis 1 is this conversation uh, that god is maker and he made these
0: he made these
1: he made these from the old gif right and then he tells his people hey now you go and make these It's an interesting kind of command and structure there. Sure. But the other piece of that is making something is also not the only characteristic of God that's right. revealed in Genesis 1. Yeah. God's goodness is surely revealed in that sure. moment. Be fruitful and multiply. Right. I think fruitfulness is the part of your divine likeness that you're in pursuit of. That's mimicking, per se, the divine attributes of God, the goodness of God. Um, And multiplication is to say that you, like God, have the capacity to be like God in bringing about life and experiences of life.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. So with that, that's Genesis 1. Genesis 2, fruit takes a different understanding in Genesis 2. The narrative is not the same with fruit in Genesis 2 because now, and interestingly enough, if you haven't heard me talk about this, on some of our other podcasts I've talked about how Genesis 1 and 2 are not the same story. In my mind, they are very clearly two different stories telling two different truths about God. Both still 100% true, but they are clearly not in unison, and that's okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Here in Genesis 2, there are several things that I want you to realize about this narrative. First and foremost is that where we think the Garden of Eden was located based on the description here in Genesis two is in Mesopotamia. Right. Clayton, do you know what Mesopotamia is to the rest of the world? Mesopotamia is the most fruitful and fertile land in the entire world.
0: Yeah.
1: Don't, don't let it be lost on you that it's the most fruitful land. Right.
0: The soil in and of itself just produces lots and lots of fruit. Correct. Yeah.
1: And here's the deal. In Genesis 2, beginning in verse 9, the text says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Clayton, when you are hungry, does fruit become food? Yeah. Yeah. We're already getting introduced to the fruitfulness of even Genesis chapter 2. And then the text goes on and it tells you where Eden is with the Tigris, the Euphrates, these four rivers here. Then verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Clayton, you grew up in Podunk, Texas, just like I did. Yep. Who tills ground? Farmers. And what do farmers plant? Crops. Yeah. Things that bear fruit. Once again, don't miss. All of this is an agrarian society littered with fruit metaphors.
0: There's also a level there to talk about the work that is put in to bear fruit.
1: Ooh. Ooh, fair. Good. Keep that. Not where we're going with this episode. Um Ooh, really good. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Really good. And then the text says And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, eat the fruit of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Right. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Yep. Up to this point, and I I don't think the writer in me wants you to know that it's not lost on me this train this is a transitional sentence for the story right up to this point in the story Clayton do you know one thing we're not told Mm. that anything is bad yeah you've not been told once that anything is bad wrong unfit nothing it's all good until this moment when you're introduced to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this tree, the fruit of this tree, yields death. Right. Do you know what the next sentence is? Remind me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good
0: mm.
1: that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner.
0: Big question that maybe needs to be explored on the God and Ethics series or at least on Pines and Perspectives that must mean the garden in and of itself was not a perfect thing. Why? In its original creation. Why? Because it's, in its original creation Adam was alone. And it was not good for man to be alone. Therefore the original creation was not perfect
1: well it depends on how you classify perfection but that you're right that is a conversation for another episode i'm actually not necessarily you're not going there but like that's
0: one that just popped in my head like yeah yeah
1: well and i actually think there's a pretty easy way to resolve that for oh, you okay it's just the way you classify perfection okay um what the way you define it um so we'll talk about it but i don't i don't really think that where you're headed is necessarily uh, the intent here um but i do say all of that to say time and time again up into this part we've been told to be fruitful and multiply right or this idea of fruit and bearing fruit all of this there's no way for a human to multiply there's no way for a human to bear fruit in a like biological kind of way without a helper now, which I do want to point out. I have been very critical of this text in the past. I also am still very critical of this text. Don't, don't hear that total shift, but our good friend, Andrew Barrett, plus a professor of mine at Truett pointed out that word helper. It's not a subservient helper kind of word. In the Psalms, where it says, and the Lord is my help. Right. Same word. Yeah. No, Same that's word. a good point. Not a subservient kind of role. Um, honestly, and maybe my qualm is not with the text. Maybe my qualm is more with the How historical interpretation from old, yeah. white, powerful men trying to oppress women.
0: The toxic masculinity of the church. Yeah. yeah.
1: But so he tells them, It's not good that you're going to be alone. So then he goes and he, you know, causes Adam to go into this deep sleep. And then he, you know, pulls his rib out and makes Eve uh, that whole story. Now, that's summarizing all of it. Mm. Here's the point that I really want to get to. In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. Right. Now, I learned something interesting this week. Did you know there's not a single time in the Old Testament that Genesis 3 is ever referenced?
0: I can't think of a time.
1: There's not one. Yeah. It's referenced in the New Testament. Yeah, I guess so. It's referenced in the Old Testament zero times. Hmm. You would think for such a foundational text, it'd be referenced. Not a one. Hmm. So do you know what that mm. means? No. The only time you ever get the idea that the serpent is Satan is not until you get to the New Testament. Which means... The text at the end, the promise of the enmity between God or between the man and the serpent, people say is a messianic text of Revelation where the man will crush, Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. You yeah, know, nobody in the Old Testament times thought that. It's never referenced. That's not a, a narrative you get. It's actually not until the church fathers that you even get the interpretation that that text is potentially messianic. Paul will do things and call the serpent Satan, right? but never once does anywhere in the Bible tell you that's a messianic text. Now, one reason I tell you all of that is not to mind boggle you. But to set it up that even you. you, did. (laughs) Well, but I set it up to tell you that even you living your life in church have been hoodwinked.
0: Sure. That's the, yeah.
1: (laughs) Very few people in the world look at a snake and go, ooh, fun. Right. That's enmity. Just naturally that people have a disposition when they look at snakes and go, ooh, yeah, you make me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Now. I bring up the conversation about being hoodwinked for a very specific reason. Because I spent the last week racking my brain. I cannot think of a time where it was presented to me that this story, Genesis 3, I can't think of a single time where this story was presented to me in a way that Eve was not a conniving witch.
0: Right. Well, or just plain stupid.
1: Fair. Which, interestingly, let's read this text closely, okay? And I'm going somewhere here. Clayton, when you were a kid... And this text was taught to you. Was Eve alone? Yes. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Yeah. She's not alone. Why is is it that you and most other people have been, quote unquote, to the words that I'm using, hoodwinked? Why? Uh Uh-huh well be think very critically here
0: like of the text
1: no 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 of the church of just overall think very critically really ask yourself the question why why would i have this reading and understanding of the text
0: because then it gives power to the man that's the deal it
1: well and it's not just that the interpretation of genesis 3 that we were given they needed to have as the foundation of the faith that they wanted to construct. Yeah. Let me tell you what I think's happening here. And let me tell you how, or let me ask you how different my reading of this text is than the one that you were given. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves.
0: So homie Adam just sat here, watched all this happen.
1: He's at least not an active participant in the conversation. I really doubt that he's not having, if Adam and Eve are genuinely like real physical people and not some kind of myth about creation.
0: Sure. Which is a very valid question to ask, by the way.
1: Well, I think it is. Yeah. I mean, all all of it's pretty valid questions. Um, from Genesis 1 through 11 it feels very universal and right. almost folklore-ish. Right. and that's not to speak ill of the text please don't please yeah, don't yeah, hear yeah, me yeah, say yeah, that yeah. but at the same point these are all conversation like almost every one of these stories the bible's not even the oldest version of them right now the bible's a very different version of them but you have the epic of gilgamesh you have right. you know these other flood stories you have other versions of the tower of babel like right
0: it feels etiology
1: like and cosmology are not something that's unique right. to the Bible. No, that's true. Ancient Near Eastern cultures had answers to all of these, and they're significantly older, right, than ours. So it's not it's not to say speak ill when I call it folklorish, but it is to say the Genesis one through eleven is clearly the universal elements of the text, and you don't get to the isolated like biblical right. pieces until you get to chapter 12, which introduces the character of Abraham, which then launches the Abrahamic religions, which, if you don't know, is Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Here's what I think is happening in this story. I think Genesis 1 and 2 have set you up to believe that fruit is a part of the goodness of God. I think Genesis 1 and 2 have set you up to believe that being fruitful is an element of divinity. It's a command of God, and so to be fruitful is to be divine like God. Right. Um, This is not a conversation about why the serpent is in the garden. Uh, I think that's a very valid question, and if you're asking that question, you should also ask why is God absent, but that's not uh, the question we're answering here. When the serpent comes to her... And shout out to Sean Palmer, my coach, for pointing this out in a tweet. But the serpent uses misinformation. If you're looking for a a biblical text to show how powerful misinformation is, it's this one. Yeah. But even in his misinformation, he presents his twist with the thing that is innately connected to their core desire. You won't die. Surely not. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil an experience of the world that they've not known. And yet everything else that God has introduced them to has been good. Mm. I believe that Eve's motives are pure. Sure. I believe that Adam's motives are pure that they are in a process of pursuing divinity, pursuing divine likeness. And listener, here's what I want you to know about that. There's a reason that they are in pursuit of divine likeness. It's because it's who we are at our core. When God breathes life into... Adam and Eve in chapter 2 when Genesis 1 tells us that male and female he made them in his image and likeness the core of your being is designed to be in pursuit of God because you live in a broken and fallen world filled with misinformation you've made some decisions that were probably not the best for yourself But I believe, even in your making those decisions, perhaps you were still trying to pursue divinity in the best way that you possibly knew how. In the rest of Genesis 3, I will tell you, here's what I think the story ends with. They show up afterwards and they are ashamed from their nakedness sin the disobedience of god's commands have tainted their view of their body they are now self-conscious if you will and in them being naked and ashamed, you also have to remember that it's the knowledge of good and evil. God didn't give them, God did not instill them with anything other than goodness. They did not know evil. And so when things happen, and God calls for them in the garden, it becomes clear that they've messed up. They've done something, in the truest sense of the word, catastrophic. Their entire world is about to change. But even in their entire world changing, and God gives some very, very strong curses to them, God actually initiates the thing that is utterly against him, the thing that you would have never known God to be, God creator, God maker, God giver and author of life. At this moment, things change. and The text says, after all of this, God took and made for them clothes from skins. Listener, if there's one thing I want you to know about all of this language of fruit is that being fruitful means that you're in pursuit of divinity. Being fruitful means you're in pursuit of divine likeness, and you're going to do some things wrong. In your pursuit of the fruitfulness of God, you're going to do some things wrong. but i can't help but read the story to say that god is willing to do absolutely anything including be the first character to initiate death the first one that we actually see take life isn't cain right it's god when he kills the animal to make them clothes Because even in your failed attempt at fruit-bearing, you were still fruit-seeking. So God has care for you and love for you in your moment of attempt as much as He does in your moment of success.